and gentlemen. Uh, Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, hosted by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So it is late on Thursday. Um, because as I mentioned at the end of the Michael Brendan Doherty podcast, I am flying out to California to visit my daughter tomorrow. I am, while I am right now, extremely exhausted and screw you, Chris Starwald for complaining about how often I say I am exhausted. Um, despite being exhausted, I am um, still internally giddy, if maybe not outwardly so about seeing my daughter, um, empty nesting. I can't say that it's, 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 to say it's hard is kind of like the wrong adjective. It's, um, you know, I compared that dropping when I did that podcast, when I dropped off Lucy at school a few months ago, um, I, uh, I compared it to, you know, sort of kind of like the phantom pain of a amputated limb, which I know is dramatic, but it's real in the sense, I mean, I I mean, again, it's not the same thing. Like most analogies, they compare, um, two things that are different, but they find a commonality, you know, as I think it was, I think it was Eric Idle who said a day without coffee is like something else without something else. Um, but it's, you just kind of feel like this, um, you know, this, this, population of this tiny little civilization that is your core family has just gone missing and it's um it's weird you know you find yourself walking around a little bit like you know there's this thing that dogs do where they walk into a room and then they look around and like wait a second how did i get here what what am i doing here um you find yourself doing a lot of that i mean it's not quite like joe biden exiting the stage, but it's, it's, there's something similar to you where you just feel like, you know, a whole bunch of your patterns, um, no longer apply and, um, and not necessarily, not really for the most part in a good way. Yeah. I mean, there's some hassles with parenthood that, you know, um, you don't miss, but you appreciate that the hassles are part of a, um, a larger bargain that you benefit from in all sorts of important tiny ways on a daily basis. Anyway, I don't want to, I didn't plan. I have no plan, zero plan. Um, I put in slack. Part of the problem is that I've been so busy with other work stuff this week that I have not, I'm not super on top of the news. So if there's some great breaking thing going on, um, this is not the place where I will, um, dive into it. Um, I put in Slack asking for suggestions for stuff to talk about, and they were all good suggestions, but they all required homework, and I got to get, I had to get started. So, um, uh, you know, Steve sent me one thing about um, some school or librarian that um, announced that if you're going to have books on the Holocaust in the library, you need to have books showing the other perspective um, uh, for balance. And, um, 
this is sort of a classic example of having such an open mind, your brain falls out. Um, you know, you don't have to both sides everything. I mean, I don't know what the other legitimate perspective is on, on the Holocaust. It's to me, it's not all that dissimilar from saying provide the other perspective on slavery. Um, if you want to explain why slavery was bad and why it lasted so long, it's fine to have books that, you know, recount the arguments about why people thought they should have slaves and all that kind of stuff. Um, just as like, it's fine to have history books that recount why the Germans did what they did and why the world reacted the way that it did or didn't. Um, all that stuff is fine for historical context, but like if there's a, you know, it's, it's just not a both sides kind of thing. And the attempt to make it one is, you know, sort of definitionally pernicious. Um, but again, I haven't read up on it. So maybe the thing that he sent me, I just read the top line thing. Um, maybe there's more to the story that I don't understand. Or maybe it's just a story about someone being an idiot. Um, um, which is something that I think a lot of people, I was going to say conservatives, but this is just as much a problem on the left, sometimes more so where people want when bad things, when institutions or bad decisions are made, um, the, the way our brains work is we want to apply intentionality to it. We want to say, Oh, someone deliberately did this absolutely horrible, evil thing. And, um, and therefore they're evil when in reality, bureaucratic, uh, stupidity or just plain old stupidity explain it. And people thought they were doing a good thing or thought they were following some code or norm when in reality they were just idiots. And, um, I tend to think, you know, I'm sort of a Murphy's law about this. I think it's a Murphy's law, but you know, um, the first place with most, you know, scandals and, and of various kinds, the, the, you should always rule out, you know, stupid human error before you leap to the conclusion that evil forces are maneuvering, um, to bring things about because the simple fact of, of, life is that very few people think they're evil. First of all, some of them are wrong, but, um, um, but usually, you know, the, the plan is to be, um, is to be doing the right thing. And you just have a stupid theory about what's right and what's wrong. Anyway, I, I don't know why I got onto that. I don't know what I got onto any of this. I did want to write, so I had to work on the G file today. Um, which I hate doing in advance because then the next morning when I look at it, I'm like, this is, this doesn't feel, it doesn't have the joie de vivre of racing a deadline in real time and, and just vomiting out of the, your frontal lobe. And you tend to, the longer time horizon you have to write, the more you second guess yourself. At least, I shouldn't say yourself, I, more I second guess myself. This is one of the reasons why I agonize about books because when you write books, the deadline is so far in advance, you're like, I got to, you know, I have no excuse, but to get this right the way I like it. And when you're writing on a deadline of a few hours, um, you kind of make a deal with yourself that you just trust your instincts and your muscle memory and the sort of, uh, adrenaline that you get of racing towards a deadline to, um, uh, 
come up with something good and you hope that readers sort of understand it at least with again i hope the readers understand it when it comes to something like the g-file that that was part of the mix of me writing it in the first place was doing it fast and drawing on sort of my gut which is ample um rather than um you know spending days or weeks or months you know polishing every sentence and all that kind of thing um but I did want to write about, and I didn't, and I still will write about in a more considered way down the road, um, about The Wire. Um, my wife and I just finished all five seasons of The Wire. I'd seen it before. This was maybe, was it was at least my third time watching most of it. Um, it was my wife's only second time, and she hadn't seen it in years. It holds up, for sure. It is still one of the greatest television shows ever made. I would argue that that Breaking Bad was still better um because of its the 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 artistry of it in a sense. Uh, I mean I wrote a cover story for National Review years ago saying it was the best show on TV. Um I now am willing to argue while acknowledging that you know tastes differ among people that Breaking Bad was the best show ever made full stop. And the reason for that is that like the shows that usually are considered the contenders and interestingly, like two of them were on it were HBO shows. Um, uh, they didn't have the discipline of basically making an entire novel with a beginning, middle and end and a character arc that full unfolded over the course of however many seasons Breaking Bad was, I think four or five. Um, without losing sight about what they wanted to do, um, you know, what does say, uh, David Gillian, I can't remember the guy's name right now, but the creator of the, of Breaking Bad said that he wanted to tell the story of how, you know, Mr. Chips becomes Scarface. And I think the way it deals with the sort of the power of arrogance and will, um, to transform a fundamentally decent person in a into essentially um, a villain is uh, it's just brilliantly done. And the, um, and you know, the Sopranos doesn't do anything like that. I think a lot of people misunderstand the Soprano Sopranos. It is ultimately a dark comedy in many ways about suburban life um, more than it is actually a mob show. And they hide that brilliantly in all the mob stuff, which I love, you know, and I like the Sopranos a lot. And I think the Sopranos is very funny, but it's a dark comedy at the end of the day with a lot of meandering, ridiculous, um, you know, cul-de-sacs in it. Um, you know, I, I was not, you know, I, some people think this, you know, that it's a deep commentary on life about contingency and unfulfilled hopes and narratives and all these kinds of things for it to have, you know, for it to introduce all of these red herrings thematically or plot wise that then never pay off. You know, the, I mean, the most famous example is the Russian and the pine barons who just, just disappears and you never find out what the hell that was about. And I get the argument and sometimes it's probably, you know, has some merit to it, but other times it just kind of feels self-indulgent or they're just, uh, experimenting on the fly as they go. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's still a fantastic show. I love the Sopranos, but I don't think 
it does it i don't think it executes as well as as breaking bad does um and i also just have a general rule um that when i'm grading things that the the appearance of dream sequences always drops you a few points and the reliance of dreams on the dream sequences can cost you almost a whole letter grade um I don't want to say the Sopranos is a B or anything like that, but way too many dream sequences. And, um, um, and ones that I don't think advance the plot. I mean, I'm still trying to figure out what that whole thing with the aerospace salesman, Finneran guy talking to the Buddhist monks about their, about their eviction or whatever the hell that was, um, in the Sopranos, why I had to endure all that. Um, and I suspect that part of it is, is that this also happens. This is one of the things that ruined mash as that, as the actors become more indispensable, the central actors become more indispensable. They start throwing their weight around in the creative process. And so while mash started as kind of an ensemble, I don't think mash holds up nearly as well as I would have thought it would have 20 years ago, but, it, but still the first, you know, few seasons of mash were great, um, on its own terms. And by the end of it, you had, it was basically a vanity project for Alan Alda and, and was it Loretta Swit? And, you know, and it got, it took itself way too seriously and became way too formulaic. Um, and I think it was mostly because Alan Alda just big footed his way around in it. I sometimes think that Al Pacino ruins or makes movies worse by doing the same, by demanding certain kind of you know, that he has to preen in a way that chews up scenery and time. But anyway, back to The Wire. The Wire, again, really holds up. It's really interesting. It's a fascinating sort of comment on urban America in all sorts of ways. And it is, um, but it's interesting watching it now about how, you know, first of all, The Wire kind of got made, I don't want to say 10 years, but like five years too late. It was, you know, um, there was that homicide life on the street show. There was, um, the original miniseries, the, the corner and they kept, you know, they, they, they sort of frozen time, a lot of issues that really applied to the early nineties and, and kind of shoehorned them in to the early two thousands when, by which time, you know, urban crime was really on the decline already and the salience of crime politically was much different in the real world than it was portrayed as in the show. Um, and you know, and a lot of it is sort of special pleading against, uh, you know, practices like, you know, Comstat, which they used in New York to help get the crime rate down. Um, as if like doing statistics, you know, caring about crime statistics and focusing on crime statistics and using those techniques was just sort of obviously bad when, in reality, that stuff really worked in New York and has a lot of merit to it. Um, and, you know, and there's a lot of other sort of like political um, uh, self-indulgence in it that becomes more apparent when you watch it, you know, this far out from when it first aired. Um, but, I mean, one of the things that I that really sort of came through to me and I thought was sort of fascinating is how much the culture and the politics of the left have changed in the last 20 years or so. 
So, you know, look, we just went through this riot of idiocy about, you know, uh, defund the police and all this stuff about slave patrols and, you know, and, and that, uh, the criminal justice system is inherently racist. And I'm, I'm not trying to say there's no racism in the criminal justice system. There is obviously, but, um, but I don't think it's the issue that, you know, some people make it. And even if the issue were as bad as some people claim, it doesn't justify getting rid of police, um, which is just dumb on its own merits for reasons I've ranted about plenty of times before. But what's interesting is that when you look at the show close up, um, you know, the, the two central, I would argue with the two central characters, um, well, the three central characters, the three cops who are like uh, the heart of it, McNulty bunk and, um, Oh gosh, I'm forgetting his name. The other African American guy, who's the genius with all the tech stuff and the wire stuff and all that. Um, uh, their obsession is finding murderers. They take finding murderers really, really, really seriously, and their whole complaint is that um, the the system isn't paying providing the resources for them to be better at catching murderers and um you know you defund the police you know, what happens to that function and so like this guy mcnulty you know he fakes a a serial killer so that he can um use the scarce resources uh, so they can use the money that is being diverted to find the serial killer so that he can get back up on putting this drug dealer and, and mass murderer in jail. And the takeaway from the show, if you watch the show without caring about, you know, finding political meaning and, or any of that kind of stuff, just the, the, the plain text, not the subtext, right? Not the larger framework that you're supposed to put it all in and the indictment of urban America and yada, yada, yada just the 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 straight up um uh narrative of the show is that what that real police work is extremely important in fact vital um that catching drug dealers is really really important um and catching murderers is really really important and it is an outrage that um the government doesn't give the police enough money and resources to do that. And, you know, back in the day, the wire was wildly praised by the left for all sorts of reasons. You know, I mean, even Barack Obama loved it and he quoted it all the time about, you know, criminal justice stuff and whatever. But, you know, that was the, that was the, one of the central plot lessons of the whole thing was that the, you know, the police department is under-resourced in its effort to catch and find overwhelmingly Afri young African-American criminals. Um, and I get, you know, that it has, makes other points about the drug war and all these other kinds of things. But if you pitched a show that said, hey, look, we're going to do this thing about, you know, cops that um, move hell and high water to... Uh, be more successful at putting young black men in prison who deserve to be in prison 
you wouldn't automatically think that that is the most left-wing idea um, out there because the left has moved on to view the criminal justice system in a completely different way inside of the space of 20 years. And it's funny, back, you know, back when it was still on the air for first run, I wrote about this a few times in the corner where I always, you know, there was all this talk about whether it was, you know, a fundamentally Marxian indictment of, you know, of welfare state liberalism or liberal democratic capitalism or America in general and all these kinds of things. And that may well have been the intent, but when um, you actually translate this stuff to the screen, it's received very, very differently on a bunch of different levels. It's sort of like in the seventies, they did these studies where they, they asked like Scandinavians who their favorite character and all the family was. And, you know, or not Scandinavian, they asked people in different countries what their favorite characters were and all in the family, you know, the Archie Bunker show. And in a lot of countries, some people said, in some countries, people said the, their favorite and their most, uh, sympathetic character was Archie Bunker which was definitely not Norman Lear's intent for the most part. And other people said it was no, 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 it was meathead. Um, people receive these things kind of differently when you actually translate it into real art that feels like it is speaking to a reality um, that's accessible to normal people. And The Wire, you know, say what you will about its messages about the drug war, which I guess I can get to in a second. Um, you know, there's literally not a Republican on screen. They talk about the evil Republican governor of Maryland a bunch, right? In the last few seasons, because this mayor Carcetti guy wants to run for governor. Um, and it's just sort of stated as a given that, you know, of course, the Republican mayor of one of the most liberal states in the country um, has to be a hard hearted, you know, son of a bitch. And therefore, anything to get him out is justified because obviously having a Democratic governor, including one that is just so morally corrupt as Carcetti becomes, um, I don't know if he's totally morally corrupt, but he's pretty corrupt. Uh, you know, the ends justify the means and all of that. Um, but meanwhile, all of the decisions that are made, all of the policies that are in place, um, both by government officials and by voters, are all about democratic machine politics in urban America, you know, which is to still to this day, the bastion of, of, you know, of Democrats and progressives, the, you, you know, they have those lists, you can find them all over the place on the internet, you know, number of cities that have been run solely by Democrats for 40, 50, 60, 70 years. Um, and Baltimore is basically one of those kinds of places. I don't think they've had a Republican governor, I mean, a mayor in a long time. Um, uh, but regardless, the policies in general, these are all sort of, this is the liberal bureaucratic welfare state at work. It's not, you know, there are no, there are no Barry Goldwaters here or Ronald Reagan's here. And um, I understand that like, when people want to invoke sort of the Marxian thing, they're talking about how, well, the means of production have changed and, and, um, uh, you know, dock workers can't get the kind of work that they once did and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, one of the reasons why the docks are dying is 
because they can't, the unions can't bribe enough politicians to dredge the canal to get bigger ships in and all that kind of stuff. But another one of the reasons is that the unions are calcified, um, uh, bureaucratic, uh, uh, feather nesting or whatever that phrase is entities that, um, put efficiency and, um, uh, you know, and capitalism by the wayside. And it's, uh, you know, it's funny. It was funny to watch the season two with the union stuff and the, and the unions, the dock worker unions amidst all the supply chain thing. And, you know, just this week, I guess, Biden talked to the longshoremen unions and those guys out in California and got them to move to 24 hour shifts instead of, you know, uh, I don't know if it was nine to five, but it was, you know, it was not round the clock. And it's astounding how like that stuff, you know, the unions have been immune, uh, to efficiency, modernization and all the rest. I mean, Scott Linsicum was saying how, um, our docks, you know, our, 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 our ports rank something like 112th in efficiency, um, precisely because, um, even very sort of socialist or socialist, social democratic nations understood that, you know, being able to compete in the global workplace meant updating your, uh, you know, your, your ports. And there's actually a scene in, in the wire where they get a presentation about how um, amazing the ports are in, um, I think it's Amsterdam or I should say in Holland. And it's, and it terrifies and horrifies and disgusts these, these corrupt union bosses because, you know, they see themselves being replaced by robots. And I, I, I get that. But, um, if you up the efficiency of ports sufficiently, it's not like there will be no human jobs there anymore. Um, and the ancillary benefits would be such that you would, you know, it would, it would be better for the Baltimore economy, um, better for the inner city in all sorts of ways. Um, and so there's a, there's a sort of antiquated, um, old style, um, left-wing unionist kind of view and a sort of, you know, uh, sort of hackneyed Reagan era understanding of politics to the whole thing. And it just doesn't. And, and then there's also, there's, there's almost like a 1930s kind of Barton Fink dramaturgy to it where they really hit you over the head with some, you know, we are making a point now thing. Um, every now and then in the drama that is, that, that I don't think is going to age all that well. Anyway, I, I probably talked too long. Like if you've never seen the wire, you're probably pissed. I've talked this long about it. Um, I do want to write more about it at some point. Um, because I do think that like, first of all, I think this Marxist point is, is kind of an important one in all sorts of interesting ways, or at least I have in the past simply because, um, one of the things that conservatives of various stripes and Marxists have in common is a pretty blistering critique of the bureaucratic welfare state. And, um, I think their theory about how to replace it with something better is nuts. But, um, a lot of the points that they make about the problems with modern society, I think are, are pretty fair. And, um, you know, I mean, even Marx himself, uh, he had a lot of interesting observations about, um, 
you know, the alienation and the exploitation of, of urban workers and whatnot that um, had some bite. A lot of it was kind of cribbed from Charles Dickens, but that's another story. So I don't know where to go from here, I guess. one. So I was recently reading, um, I had this idea for the dispatch. You know, we do this thing in the morning dispatch, uh, these worth your time links where we send people to like magazine pieces or journal pieces or newspaper, whatever, you know, various um, op-eds, articles, interviews, whatever that are out um, that we think people might, that we think are worth your time to read. And we do it for a bunch of reasons. One, we think it's a good service um, for people. Uh, two, it's a good way to sort of, um, you know, telegraph our view that you should read widely and have a diverse media diet. Um, it's also, you know, this is not a primary thing, but um, there are a lot of good writers out there and giving them giving them a little love we think is good in its own right but it's also um good for us because it buys at some marginal level some goodwill from people um you know it, if people say oh you know I, I wouldn't have seen your piece except i saw it you know in the worth your time thing in the morning dispatch that's good it's sort of just a very small marketing kind of thing but anyway i had this idea to do a kind of don't know what to call it yet but like a worth your time classic where um we point to articles that are old that uh stand the test of time that are really interesting um partly that's because that's where my interests lie um i you know i used to be a voracious reader of magazines and i still re- I have a pretty good recall for the things i found interesting love the magazine lingua franca i used to read the new republic fairly religiously the new yorker you know the economist and there are still articles and of course the the public interest commentary national review all that kind of stuff um and there are articles that i find useful to this day um and sometimes more useful than this a lot of the stuff that um circulates around and so we thought i I had this idea i don't know when or if we're going to do it but people seem to like it of like maybe every friday having some kind of like weekend read classic where we point you we point you know subscribers to um uh you know golden oldies that deserve to be revisited you know and you know like for example i would you know i I link to it all the time but albert j knox isaiah's job from i think 1936 that thing is great reading even today um it's certainly you know relevant for me and all my shtick um and there are all sorts of things and commentary from the fifties and sixties that are worth revisiting. And anyway, I got this idea because I was looking up something else for something that I ended up not writing. And, um, I went and looked back at this piece that I read, I guess it was 25 years ago. Well, anyway, it was from the public interest in I think 1996, we'll put it in the show notes. Um, and, by James Q. Wilson, who was never really a household name, but was arguably one of the top five social scientists of the 20th century, 10. I mean, uh, people will differ. Hugely influential, had a lot of protégés who went on to do great things. Incredibly sweet, 
and intellectually humble guy for someone who was so brilliant and um, such a great writer. Um, he was the chairman of the board of academic advisors for AEI for a zillion years. Um, wrote some pathbreaking books. One of them was on um, bureaucracy. I think it was just called bureaucracy. Um, he and uh, what's his name, George Kelling, wrote the famous essay "Broken Windows." He looked. He did a lot of work on crime, um, and uh, he wrote that famous "Broken Windows" essay, which led to the policing revolution that brought, you know, brought that crime era that The Wire harkens back to. Um, down and the for those of you who don't know broken windows theory basically says that you know small quality of life crimes are uh, are bad in their a in their own right but b because they create a sense of and i'm quoting this all from memory i haven't read it in a long time um they create a sense of disorder and chaos and a breakdown of norms uh, in cities and that sends a signal to people to that, that sort of everything is permitted. And I think I'm getting this right. I might be butchering it, but the broken window thing starts with how, if, if, a, a, if a kid breaks one window in the side of a building, you know, in a poor neighborhood and no one comes along to fix it and no one says anything about the kid doing it in short order, all the windows will be broken because people will think it's okay to just throw rocks through windows. And this led to massive reforms in how policing is done in, in New York city where under Bratton and Giuliani, you know, before the fall, um, they did things like just clean up graffiti every day on the subways. They created a system where the subways would pull into their, you know, terminal to go to sleep at night. And they would power wash off all the graffiti. And this took away, first of all, it sent the signal that the city hadn't been taken over by vandals, but it also sent a signal to the vandals that sure, go ahead, put in hours of time and spend, I don't know, a hundred, $200 with spray paint, but it's not going to last. You know, your tag's not going to be up there for all to see for all time. It's going to be up there for 24 or 48 hours before it's washed away. So maybe it's just not worth the effort. It also translated into things like, um, you know, turnstile jumping, where first of all, turnstile jumping is bad in and of itself. It's said, it's, first of all, it's against the law. Um, second of all, you're literally free riding on other people who, who pay the toll um, or the fare. Um, um, but it also turns out that the people most willing to jump turnstiles to get onto the subway for free um, are probably willing to do worse things uh, than that. And so when cops would arrest them, they'd, you know, they'd look up to see if they had any warrants or they'd look to see if they were carrying a gun. Because if you're willing to carry, you know, if you're willing to, if you're willing to carry an illegal firearm in New York City, um, it's entirely possible that you're also see no problem with turnstile jumping. And so in fact, the lesser crimes were kind of like signals for greater crimes and this and a whole bunch of other things, um, uh, were the things that led to, you know, the reduction in crime. I don't, did not intend to go off on that long tangent. Um, but anyway, so I was reading this piece by, um, James Q. Wilson 
from the mid nineties in the public interest. And it, uh, it's fantastic. It really is fantastic. And it's another one of these pieces that I wish I had read, you know, or remembered when I was writing suicide of the West. Um, because it's, it's a lot of stuff I know because I, you know, I get into Adam Smith and the morality of capitalism through other ways, but, but James Q. Wilson is so good at distilling these things down into really digestible prose and distilling these principles in clear ways that, you know, for a lot of people kind of get lost about why there is, um, why there is a deep morality to capitalism. And, um, you know, I've, I, I emphasized in suicide of the West for the most part, um, the material morality of it, right? I mean, if you actually, if you claim to care about the poor, if you claim to care about public health, if you claim to care about public education, if you claim to care about the health of the environment, um, um, uh, you know, lifespan, all of these kinds of things, uh, capitalism's the only game in town. It's the only thing that throws off enough prosperity that lifts the poor up from below. It doesn't just, it, yes, it makes the rich richer, but it also makes the poor richer. And there is no disputing that. Um, particularly if you're going to look at it from the sort of, you know, the, the 30,000 foot level. And I, I mentioned some of this in the G file on Wednesday, but, um, uh, you know, for, for 250,000 years, the average human being on earth everywhere around the world lived on about $3 a day. And then only once in all of human history did that change. And it happened about 300 years ago. And it was because of the advent of liberal democratic capitalism and, and all of the, the norms and ideas that are sort of essential to it being introduced and being allowed to prosper, to grow at scale. And, um, but there are other aspects of capitalism that are, that are moral. And I, um, I think it's worth pointing this out because, excuse me, um, you know, I, I do this riff every now and then about how I get annoyed with people who say that, um, classical liberalism, neutral rules, quote unquote, neutral rules, um, neutral procedural rules about the rule of law and all these kinds of things are amoral and that the state should impose, um, a more robust definition of morality on society, um, are so wrong, you know, because, uh, the rules of a classically liberal order are, 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 are only neutral in the sense that they apply to everybody equally, or at least that's how they're supposed to apply. And um, that system, that mechanism, is deeply moral in a positive way. Uh, you know, the you know the right to face your accuser, the habeas corpus, fair trials, um, the right to worship as you please, uh, the right to travel as you please. Uh, you can go down that list. They're all these are these are moral goods embedded in a in a neutral system well there are also there's similarly there are moral goods embedded in um in capitalism and one of the reasons why this this wilson i'll give you a little backstory one of the reasons why the wilson essay is so interesting is that he directly invokes 
two very famous or older 25 year years earlier pieces that had been written by the two original founders of the public interest, Irving Kristol and uh, Daniel Bell. And more people have heard of the Daniel Bell essay because it later became a book. It had a big splash and it was called the cultural contradictions of capitalism or something along those lines. And the argument of cultural contradictions of capitalism is this argument you guys have heard me prattle on about a lot, you know, this Schumpeterian thing about how Marx was wrong. Capitalism wasn't doomed because the workers would rise up um, because they were so sick of being poor and exploited. The argument that Schumpeter made that, 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 that Bell, you know, riffed on and developed was that capitalism's demise, if it is to come, will come from the ranks of the rich. Because rich people tend to throw off progeny that um, reject the very values that got their parents to be rich in the first place. And over time, you get uh, these sort of um, uh, post-capitalist, you get this sort of post-capitalist managerial class, new class, whatever you want to call it. This is all, you know, this is Schumpeter, this is Bell, this is... Um, Burnham, this is, uh, even, and, and from crystal and people define new classes in different ways, but these people, um, become, they're sort of a technocratic elite that, um, want to wrest control of managing the economy from the system. It's, you know, from the sort of laissez-faire system where people just get to do what they want, but also from their perceived view that like the captains of industry run everything and I argue, as I argue in my book, that that new class, however you want to define it, of you know, of intellectuals, w- uh, word and image manipulators, is doing that right now. And they've you know taken over universities, they've taken over the media. Um, I'm not saying it in some conspiracy kind of way. I'm just saying that 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 they are hostile to the to the to the norms and customs and rules that. Um, allowed liberal democratic capitalism to flourish in the first place. And part of that whole argument, you know, that Turchin thing that I talked to Graham Wood about, and I keep bringing up about surplus elites, um, the new sort of nationalist integralist elites are doing the exact same thing. They're just doing it as insurgents, right? Because they're locked out of these elite institutions even more than conventional conservatives are. And so what they're trying to do is, use words and arguments and populist politics to dethrone the current elites and replace them with themselves. Anyway, that was the Daniel Bell thing. The Irving essay, um, which is really just a beautiful essay, even though I have my disagreements with it. Um, everyone knows Irving Crystal is kind of like my dashboard saint. Um, I wouldn't say everyone knows that it is known though. Um, uh, Irving wrote this essay, again, I might be slightly butchering the title, but we can put it in the show notes too, called When Virtue Loses All Her Loveliness. Um, And what Irving was doing, it was a kind of, it was a mildly biting, certainly insightful, but I think fundamentally flawed attack on capitalism on the grounds that if you know he was going after libertarians particularly friedrich hayek and friedrich hayek 
basically had made the argument that, as, as Irving tells it, I'm not sure this is fair to, to Hayek, but as Irving wrote it, that, you know, because of Hayek's total opposition to concepts like social justice um, and his belief that, um, here, I'll read you the quote, one of the quotes from Hayek that Irving had cited. Um, Irving, uh, Hayek had said, in a free society, it is neither desirable nor practicable that material rewards should be made generally to correspond to what men recognize as merit. Now, that might sound like a weird thing to say because, you know, defenders of capitalism say that capitalism does in fact reward merit. But what um, Hayek was getting at was something a little more subtle. He was saying that it's, 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 you can't come up with a definition of merit that is adjudicated or imposed or upheld by the state that won't over time become essentially um, arbitrary. It'll be, you know, this is the problem with social justice. It is it's a conception of what a society, an aesthetic conception of what a society should look like particularly in terms of the distribution of wealth and income and all of, and societal rewards. And it wants to impose that from above on the population. And Hayek's point was you can't do that because ultimately once you give the state or institutions, whatever, that kind of power, their definition, their definition of merit will be arbitrary. It'll be self-serving. No one's going to come up with a definition of no one in a position of power is going to come up with a definition of merit in the sense of who gets the lion's share of distributed resources that won't reward themselves, right? They're not going to say, well, I don't do anything worthwhile here, so I should be paid a pittance. Um, uh, you know, this is why communist and Marxist societies, where they do subscribe to this kind of doctrine of social justice, they always give themselves the nicest apartments, the best salaries, the most perks. Um, send their kids to the best schools because when the market's not deciding who is of merit, the rulers are. And so that's why Hayek favored an open system where the system itself would reward people based upon the interplay of people in a society with fair rules um, and let people make their own choices. And, um, you know, and this comes up all the, this is, this is the heart of the thing about equity versus equality, um, in a, in the taken to its natural extreme, right? I'm just being glib here and just I'm totally freelancing this stuff. But, you know, I talked a little bit about this with George Will, right? But like, if you're, if you take the argument of equity to its natural extreme, right? Equity being, you know, the, the way they like to teach this in textbooks, and, you know, in little flyers and pamphlets from the HR department is they have a bunch of kids trying to see a parade over a fence and equality says that they all get a spot along the fence. But because one of the kids is really short, equity gives that kid a box to stand on so he could see over the fence. Now, I'm not saying that the kids shouldn't have a box to see over the fence. But you can get that through a system of equality if people are decent and want to help out the kid who can't see over the fence, which I think that they, you know, in, any, in, in a 
in a society based upon equality before the law, that leaves a lot of room for people to just be decent and, and, and kind people without the state intervening. The, so you take, you take this equity argument to its, its extreme, and it is prima facie evidence of discrimina- discrimination or injustice in some form or another if one profession has too many, quote-unquote, too many white men in it. And, um, or another profession has uh, too few uh, black women in it or whatever. And what the problem with this is, who are you to say, absent any evidence of true discrimination of any kind, who are you to say that your vision of what these people should be doing with their lives should trump their own vision? You know, I talked to Megan McCardle about this years ago on, on this podcast where, you know, uh, she's a legit computer programmer. She can do that. I can't do that stuff, but she can do computer programming, you know, and coding or whatever and all that kind of stuff. She doesn't want to. It is not the computer engineering industry's fault that a lot of women don't want to go into it. And, uh, you know, the, the guy who does Slate Star Codex, he had some fantastic data on this kind of thing about how, like, after all the formal barriers to, uh, you know, to women and minorities were lifted in, um, in education, uh, you still saw all sorts of clumping um, where, uh, and, I, and I'm butchering the numbers here. This is just for illustration purposes. Don't quote me on the numbers. But it was something like, you know, in, in psychology, uh, women flocked to psychology um, to the point where there are a majority in, in the in medical schools who are, you know, pursuing, you know, PhDs or MDs with an emphasis on psychiatry or psychology or whatever. Um, same thing with veterinary schools. A lot of veterinary schools are actually harder to get into than med schools these days. Um, and they're disproportionately women want to go into it. Meanwhile, um, you know, uh, orthopedic surgeons are overwhelmingly men. Um, and, uh, physicists are overwhelmingly male, but, um, you know, uh, biologists are about 50, 50 or whatever. The reasons for this sorting don't have anything to do with violations of, you know, norms of social justice or anything like that. It has to do that with the fact that any, when you start looking at people, you know, people make different choices, have different desires. Some of them have a biological or genetic component to it. There are differences between men and women and what, what interests them. There are a lot, you know, a lot of professions that involve, you know, call them helping professions, um, are more attractive to women because maybe because women are better people, you know, um, uh, men have some, you know, this point Charles Murray's Charles Murray makes in, in, in human differences, you know, men have certain innate, advantages in the aggregate, right? As a statistical matter, men are better at like, uh, spatial, uh, engineering type things like 
Um, he used the example again on the remnant about how, like, you know, when you tilt a glass of water um, towards its side, the level of the water stays flat because of the nature of what water does, right? It seeks its own level kind of thing. And men, again, in the aggregate, have an easier time visualizing this than women do. Meanwhile, women are much better at reading people's emotions from their faces. Uh, you know, Charles tells a story about how he took this test where you're trying to guess the emotional state or something like that of various people just by looking at their faces. And, you know, Charles is a smart guy. He tried really, really hard and he basically couldn't get better than 50% right. Um, meanwhile, on average, women score much higher. So anyway, when you take individuals and you multiply them into population subgroups, you're going to see differences in, you know, in the plural of individual human choices. It's, I always think it's sort of interesting how you never hear the people talking about equity um, bemoaning the fact that the NBA is overwhelmingly African-American. Um, and I'm not making some like evil genetic argument or any of that kind of stuff. Um, but for cultural reasons, you know, for historical reasons, a career in professional basketball is very attractive to a larger proportion of African-Americans um, than it is to white Americans. That's not proof of anti-white bias in the NBA. In fact, the only times we ever hear about bias, professional bias in professional sports, it's still this stuff about bigotry and discrimination aimed at minorities, even though minorities you know, are wildly overrepresented as a statistical matter in major, in, in, in professional sports. And when I say overrepresented, I just mean that as purely a mathematical thing. I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I don't think it's necessarily a good thing at all. It just is. And the equity argument comes from this vision that says, this is what society is supposed to look like. And if it deviates from these essentially aesthetic priorities about you know, the distribution of different kinds of people in society, it must be proof of... of some sort of inequity and that the state needs to intervene to fix it. And this is basically Hayek's point is that the state can't do it. Any metrics that it will come up with are going to be biased, arbitrary, or self-serving to one extent or another. And so instead you make sure that the rules are fair and you'll make sure that the system rewards people according to whatever the system comes, comes up with, you know, is it, is it, wildly unjust that basketball players make so much more than poets i know right and it is it might be under social justice because poets you know speak to the heart and 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 make us realize the possibilities of whatever and blah 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 and we can talk about how wonderful trees are but the reality is is that the market rewards what people want from the market and um um and this is you know so part of hayek's point was that this is, whether you think that's good or bad, it simply is. And, um, and the attempt to come up with a better system that distributes resources and status and all these kinds of things um, uh, will lead to folly because you can't do it. That's, you know, that's it. 
And, um, uh, and, and so anyway, Irving didn't like this because he was making the case. And again, I haven't read when virtue loses its loveliness for a few years, but he was making the case that there are certain values and virtues that don't fit neatly into pure capitalism or the capitalist regime that are still valuable and important. And, um, you know, and part of his argument was that you need to make a better case. I, I don't want to be unfair to Irving here. Um, a better case for capitalism on moral grounds. Anyway, that's where James Q. Wilson comes in with um, his argument about the morality of capitalism. And it's, I, I, I know I'm already going too long here. Um, I thought I would like read you a bunch of excerpts. I'm not sure I really can do that right now, but um, I'll get, oh, so here's one passage I highlighted that gets to this point about um, coming up with a better system than capitalism. Uh, Wilson writes, I tire of hearing critics compare capitalist reality to socialist or communitarian or cooperative ideals. When ideals are converted into reality, they tend not to look so ideal. And in evaluating consequences, one must reckon up not simply the costs, but the costs set against the benefits. In addition, one must count as benefits the tendency of an economic system to produce beliefs and actions that support a prudent concern for mitigating the unreasonable costs of the system. And so this gets into part of his argument. It's a familiar argument to a lot of conservatives and defenders of capitalism, that one of the great things about capitalism is that it throws off so much wealth that you no longer, that large swaths of society no longer, um, you know, care about, you know, they're not no longer just looking to figure out where their next meal is. They can lift their heads up and look out towards a brighter and better horizon and care about things that, um, maybe don't have a strict dollar value or a strict sort of capitalist efficiency value. And this is, this is one of the great things about capitalism is that capitalism actually, um, creates enough wealth for people to start caring about things like the environment or even equity, right? I mean, lots of things. Um, uh, Wilson writes, for example, about the environment, he says, similarly, with respect to the environment, only rich, that is capitalist nations, can afford to worry much about the environment. And only democratic, that is capitalist nations, have governments that will listen to environmentalists. As with inequality, environmental policies in capitalist systems will vary greatly from the inconsequential through the prudent to the looning, but they will scarcely exist at all in non-capitalist ones. In the Soviet Union, they destroyed an entire sea. Um, they have, you know, the, the air quality, the water quality, all those things went through the floor because there was no system to... Um, uh, first of all, there's, you didn't have proper rule of law. There are a lot of reasons why it happened. But one of the things was that when you're just run by a managerial, managerial and technical elite, they don't have to listen to people they don't want to listen to. And there are fewer people who have any voice or standing for them to listen to in the first place because there aren't very many rich people who aren't dependent on the state and members of the party in the first place. In America, we have vast foundations and, and individual millionaires and billionaires who 
spend a lot of their own money, but also spend a lot of money on lobbying for environmental protections and, and all of that kind of thing in ways that you never get in status societies. We'll never know until the North Korean regime crumbles um, how horrible their environment is, but I guarantee you it's not good. Um, true story, when I lived, you know, I brief, very briefly lived in Prague after college, and um, once or twice a month, I would go up uh, to teach English to uh, chemical factory managers and in Northern Bohemia. And, um, it was a great experience. So I'd go for like a week and hang out with these people. Um, and there's the, this commune where we did these, you know, these classes, it was between two historic medieval cities. I believe their names were Litvinov and most. And I can't remember which was which, but they were like twin cities in like the 12th century cobblestones, gated archways, all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, total game of Thrones kind of thing. And, um, the first time I went up there, I was going up by bus and I look out the window and I see just this gobsmacking massive, I mean, massive hole in the ground, like, like an, almost like a crater, um, from a meteor impact. And, um, with one church on the edge of it and the rest of the buildings along the edge of this massive hole were, uh, hideous housing complexes, sort of, you know, like the projects in inner cities from the seventies and eighties. And, uh, I think the Czechs called these buildings rabbit hutches anyway. Um, and then you go, and so it turns out that that giant hole was where one of these cities once was. And it just looked like a spaceship had yanked it out. Sort of like, you know, it looked a lot like uh, in that Age of Ultron Avengers movie where that entire uh, Segovian city is pulled out from the ground and hurls towards space. It looked like that must have happened. And this is the whole city left behind when it was yanked out of the ground. And it turned out the story was, um, I, I guess it was Livinoff, but I, I could be wrong. Um, the story was, or at least as it was explained to me, was that in the 1970s, uh, the government realized that there was a bunch of really cheap coal, I think lignite or whatever it's called, um, underneath this medieval city. And so they set out to destroy it to create a coal mine there. And um, if, I, if I've got this right, I was told that before they destroyed it, they sold the rights to a movie company, some Charles Bronson World War II movie, I think, where they allowed the movie company to use real tanks to race across the town, destroying real thousand or nearly thousand year old buildings. Um, and they figured, why not? We're going to destroy the town anyway. Um, let's sell the rights to do this and they, can, they don't have to build a set. And the one building they saved was the church. They lifted that up and moved it so it could look down on the, this gaping hole in the earth below it. And the thing that's just brutal about it is then you go to its sister town and you say, my God, this is what that town looked like? Um, anyway, I bring this up because no way you get to do that in a capitalist country. Um, and one of the reasons you don't get to do it in a capitalist country is that um, capitalism and democracy are very tightly linked. 
very there are places you know as as Wilson points out in the essay there are places that can be called nominally capitalist but they tend not to survive as capitalism the jury's still out about China but for the most part capitalism doesn't thrive unless you have democracy for all sorts of interrelated reasons um, which I can't get into here um, and and so one of the things you know getting back to like the wire the the standard sort of Marxist critique about capitalist societies is that cities and, and, and particularly urban industrialization and all these kinds of things going back to Marx, um, breed alienation and exploitation and that this is all because of capitalism. But again, as, as, as Wilson points out, um, that's a product of urbanization and industrialization, not of capitalism itself. There are plenty of cities around the world in non-capitalist countries where you have much worse conditions or even had in the forties, 1940s, 1840s, 1740s, whatever you want to do it, that, that had as bad or much worse conditions than in the capitalist countries, but in the capitalist slash democratic countries, um, working conditions improved very rapidly, but they didn't in, um, in non-capitalist countries. And the, all that stuff about alienation that was just as much present in Soviet factories, if not much more so than ever was in, you know, in West German or American factories in part, because in liberal democratic countries, you know, as much as I was poo pooing on unions, there is social space for unions to form. There's the right of free association to pool resources. There are independent journalism, you know, which can shine a light on things and, and, and martial redress of grievances to government to deal with these things. And you can only have that stuff if you have capitalism and democracy and the democracy and the capitalism are, are, are tightly linked, you know? And so like the getting to Wilson's point about imposing, um, notions of sort of social justice, equity kind of stuff on societies. When people want to defend that kind of thing, they defend it in the abstract. You know, we should have a society that does X. Well, that's fine, except whenever you have examples of societies trying to do X, the results fall far short of the real world successes of liberal democratic capitalist countries. And, you know, on the alienation thing, having spent some time in Eastern Europe, and I know a bunch of people who grew up in Russia, um, it was sort of a truism that, uh, you know, you would go into, you know, communist or Soviet housing projects and the hallways would be grotesque full of litter and all sorts of other issues and but the apartments inside the housing were often you know lovely little sort of hobbit holes um where people tended to their own garden as it were even though they weren't allowed to have actual gardens because they had some sense of ownership of it but the public spaces in in command and control economies um, it had a tragedy of the commons thing. Nobody took any, you know, no one cared about it. And that kind of, you know, the new Soviet man never appeared, but the attempts to it created a much more cynical, deracinated, alienated person than capitalism has ever produced. Anyway, um, all right, so one last passage, because I like this. Uh, critics of capitalism argue that wealth confers power, and indeed it does, up to a point. But this is not a decisive criticism unless one supposes, fancifully, 
that there is some way to arrange human affairs so that the desire for wealth vanishes. The real choice is between becoming wealthy by first acquiring political or military power or by getting money directly without bothering with conquest and dom or domination. Um, and then he says, Max Weber puts it this way. It's not in quotation marks. I'm sure he's paraphrasing, but he says, Max, Max Weber puts it this way. All economic systems rest on greed, but capitalism, because it depends on profit, is the one that disciplines greed. In the process of composing that discipline, capitalism contributes to self-discipline. It encourages civility, trust, self-command, and cosmopolitanism by first making these traits useful and then making them habitual. And then he runs through all this about how this is my stuff about, you know, Max Weber and the Protestant work ethic and all these kinds of things. The, and obviously, and he, he obviously attributes a lot of this to Adam Smith as he should, but you know, the capitalist exchange, you know, as, as I put it in my book, the great thing about the market is it, provides a peaceful way for strangers to deal with each other. As Smith will point out, as lots of people point out, in subsistence societies, in tribal societies, in many sort of traditional or non-modern societies, um, strangers are dangerous. Strangers are, are not to be trusted. Even if you do commerce with them, it's usually through haggling. Um, but off, certainly in a state of nature, the way you most often deal with a stranger is if they have something that you want, you hit them with a rock and you take it. And the great thing about the market is it replaces that zero-sum approach with um, uh, a win-win approach where you have uh, a box of puppies. You, don't, you can't handle them all, so you want to sell the puppies. Um, I want a puppy. I have money. You like money. I give you money. You give me a puppy. Both of us walk away happy. And who isn't happy with a, when they have a puppy? Um, because we both got something out of the exchange. This is, you know, it's sort of, it's a little bit like the trade deficit nonsense where people say, you know, um, um, we get nothing when we buy things from abroad. Um, um, well, you know, when I get my haircut, I get a haircut. My barber gets money. It's a trade deficit, but I come away with what I want and he comes away with what he wants. So, or says she. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's sort of a fiction that, um, uh, you know, the, a lot of this trade deficit stuff is a, is necessarily a bad thing. Anyway, we don't need to talk about trade deficits. I don't, you know, if I, if I say trade deficits three times, Scott Linsicum magically appears. Um, but as, as Wilson goes on to point out, you know, and I talk about a bunch, bunch in suicide of the West, the, the market rewards, you know, even though as Hayek put it, that, that we shouldn't reward merit as a concept, right. From above, um, the market rewards merit, a different kind of merit from below. The more honest you are, uh, the better it is for you in the marketplace. Uh, the more punctual you are, the better it is for you in the marketplace. Um, you know, companies teach people how to uh, deal with customers and be polite. And, you know, uh, and you do this over time 
as Aristotle would note, we learn most of our stuff through habituation by doing it enough until it becomes a norm or a custom. Um, I, I lied. I'll read this other thing. I think this is really sort of fascinating. Um, um, in a recent paper, John Mueller of the University of Rochester, again, I don't know if John Mueller is still alive. This is from 25 years ago or so. Anyway, in a recent paper, John Mueller of the University of Rochester has observed that price haggling, once a common feature of most markets and still characteristic of some, has been abandoned, even though it conferred short-term advantages on the seller. This was true because sellers, knowing more about their wares than customers, had an advantage over most casual shoppers. But some sellers discovered that in the long run, they did more business by setting attractive fixed prices. This practice lowered transaction costs for customers, thereby enlarging the number of customers. Muller notes that as early as 1727, businessman turned novelist Daniel Defoe argued against haggling because it encouraged both parties to lie. The rise of fixed price dealing has shifted misrepresentation from price to quality, or at least to advertising about quality. Um, and you can, you know, and so, and then, you know, there are all sorts of other examples about how capitalism, it's at least supposed to encourage thrift, right? Um, uh, you know, I, again, going to my own experience when I lived in Prague, um, the rudeness of, retail people who had grown up in a system that did not provide, did not reward service or quality with profit was astounding. My favorite example of this, I'm sure I've mentioned it on here before was, um, like the first week or so I was in Prague, a friend of mine, uh, took me and my buddy to this fantastic restaurant. I have no idea what it was called. We called it the pork knee restaurant because they would serve a giant haunch of pork, um, you know, with the bone in. It was very medieval, really awesome. And they, they'd give you essentially a small serrated sword and a giant fork, and you'd eat this thing, and um, it was fantastic. Anyway, we went to this restaurant. We had a reservation. You had to have a reservation. And we got there, say the reservation was for 7 p.m. We got there like 7.10, 7.15. And they're like, yeah, you're too late. You missed your reservation. And, you know, it was annoying, but that happens in the West, right? In capitalist countries. The amazing part was right after he told us that we were too late for our reservation, he picked up the chairs around our reserve table and put them on the table and closed down the table for the night because because we failed to meet a reservation, he wasn't like, well, I'm going to serve, I serve, I seated somebody else. He was like, yay, one more table. We don't have to one more, you know, table. We don't have to serve. Um, and you can, you find stories like this all over the place. And like part of the way capitalism improves quality and customer service is simply by having many, many different vendors. If all of the vendors, all the stores are owned by the government, then the policy of how a store is successful is measured by the social justice or equity standards set by some bureaucrat somewhere. And anywhere where there is a monopoly on a service, 
the service is worse than that is where there's competition. Um, this used to be true. You know, it used to be a huge joke about how terrible the phone company was because it was a monopoly. Um, you know, Wilson points out how airport food in the seventies and eighties was terrible because airports, which are these quasi government en entities anyway, for somewhat understandable reasons, um, the rule was that they would just contract out to one vendor, one food supplier, and they would set up their crappy commissaries like you'd find on a, like on the public ferries in, um, in, in the Pacific Northwest, which are just, which are just terrible because they're public, um, you know, franchises essentially. But when they decided to all of a sudden change the policy and allow different vendors to enter airports, they started competing against each other. And in the competition, one of the things that competition does is it improves how people deal with each other because that becomes part of the competitive process of service. If one place is just full of horribly rude people, even if they might have a slightly better cheeseburger, you're going to take your business elsewhere. And this is how they train people. I had a friend, actually a friend who um, uh, wasn't the one from the Portney restaurant, but a friend I made in, in Prague who was a former uh, um, restaurateur. He owned some cinema draft houses in Florida. And he used to tell me how he would, he would hire um, kids who had been trained in McDonald's any day of the week because McDonald's was great about teaching kids um, basic life skill, you know, work life skills, you know, punctuality, uh, politeness, cleanliness, how to make change. Um, and, you know, and this, you know, this, is, this gets to like why I think, you know, there's so much that's flawed with minimum wage stuff is, you know, the minimum wage, um, you make the minimum wage too high, you, you, you don't hire these kids who have no work experience, right? Working in fast food places is for a lot of people, their first work experience. And, you know, places like McDonald's do a great job of training up these kids to the point where, you know, I think the rule now is that if you stick with a McDonald's job for six months to a year, you're going to end up being an assistant manager um, in part because there's so much churn of the workforce. Um, and then you take those skills that you learn, those habits of the heart, that sort of Aristotelian habituation of good manners and, and, and hard work, and you, you move up the ladder. And when you, if you make minimum wage laws too high, um, you don't have to, you know, habituate, um, an iPad, um, or a robot to be polite, um, and you freeze out people from that first rung of the ladder of opportunity. Anyway, uh, I, I, I know I've ranted and I'm sure I feel like I've, I've I, I feel like I've been yelling at somebody on like a public bus and they keep trying to move away from me and I keep saying, no, 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 but you don't understand. Um, um, so I'm not even sure of um, where I was going, but I, I, I will say that if all of the kids who were selling dope on the corner in the wire had instead been working at McDonald's, it would have been better for them and better for society. And, um, um, and the sort of cheap Marxist understandings of the problems of the inner city do not allow for that simple yet incandescently obvious point. Um, and I feel like I'm forgetting a zillion things, but it is now... Good God, it's 6.52 in the evening. Um, so I'll, I'll stop here.
I didn't talk about third parties. I didn't talk about any of that stuff. I didn't talk about the guys at the bulwark or any of that, but I wrote about it in the Wednesday G file. I talked a little bit about it with Michael Brendan Doherty, who I, I really have a, yeah, have a warm place in my heart for Michael, but it was complicated conversation and I'm still waiting to hear the feedback on it. And again, so grateful for the incredible support and feedback we got on our two year anniversary. Um, and the feedback we got from mine and Steve's conversation about the bulwark was great for the most part. Um, some people were not great, but that's the life I've chosen. And, um, um, other than that, I got really nothing else for you. So everybody have a great weekend. I'll say hi to my kid for you. And, um, there'll be fewer dog posts on Twitter and whatnot. Um, but, uh, I'll see you next time.